Amen, amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well. Happy Easter. If you don't know me, uh, my name's Billy. I get the privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. It's a huge honor for me to serve you uh, in that way. Uh, joy of my life to do that. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I hope you brought your Bible. Uh, I'm really excited. This passage is one that's probably very familiar uh, to you. This is the story of the resurrection, but I want to kind of bring a new uh, lens to it this morning. Uh, this chapter, uh, if you study the entire chapter, really gives you three scenes into the life of Jesus. And so the first being the empty tomb, the resurrection, uh, the second one being Jesus uh, on the road to Emmaus with a couple of uh, people, and we get to see him encounter them and talk with them. And then lastly, we get to see Jesus in the room with his disciples in the upper room as he gets ready to ascend back to heaven. And so uh, I'm excited to look at this together. I believe God wants to speak to our hearts this morning. Uh, so Luke 24, we're going to start in verse 1 and uh, work our way uh, through this. So let's start here in verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, uh, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. So that's a common practice in Judaism. It's basically after a body is, has been buried, it's dead. Uh, people would go, it doesn't necessarily have to be women, but here women would go uh, and basically put spices on the body, clean the body, uh, and make sure that it's ready, uh, ready to go. And so that's what they're doing. Uh, but when they got there, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes uh, that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified on the third day and then be raised again. And then they remembered Jesus' words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed uh, to them like nonsense. But Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. And so the first kind of scene that we get is this scene of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus. And can, uh, one thing I love about the way that Luke writes is Luke writes in such a way that you can almost uh, put yourself in the story. And that's what a good writer, of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uh, can do. And so you kind of almost have to put yourself in their shoes. And uh, imagine over the past few days the roller coaster that these women uh, would have been on as they watched Jesus, the person that they loved so much, the person that they had left everything to follow, be betrayed by one of their own, to be crucified, to be brutally murdered in front of their own eyes. Sadness is not the word to explain that. Uh, devastated is more uh, the best adjective I can come up with to explain kind of how they would have been feeling uh, at this. But now here we are three days later, and they walk up to put spices on the body, and a two-ton stone that was placed in front of the tomb has been rolled away and they're looking in there, and there's no Jesus. The tomb is empty, and all they see are some linens laying on the ground that would have wrapped around Jesus' body. They were folded up as if somebody had folded them and left. 
And so, uh, and then, of course, they start to question. Their first uh, instinct is not, Jesus is risen from the dead. They start thinking, well, what happened? Did somebody take his body? Did somebody steal it? Uh, am I at the wrong tomb? Like, what is going on? But then God leaves no doubt. Because then they look and two angels appear and they clarify what's going on. Did you hear what they said? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you this uh, while he was still in Galilee, that he would be delivered in the hands of sinners and then be crucified on the third day and be raised up again. And so can you imagine when the angels would have told them this, the joy that they would have been experiencing in that moment only to run to uh, the disciples and tell them, and the disciples are like, yeah, we don't believe you. You're crazy. That sounds like nonsense uh, to me. But Jesus, in their mind, he had done it. He had paid for the sin of the entire world. He had conquered sin and death forever. And that's why we gather today to celebrate. Like We're celebrating the risen Savior because we don't have to fear death anymore. Because we believe that Jesus is who he says he is because he's given us undeniable proof. This is why we have eternal hope and eternal joy that can never be taken away from us because our faith does not rest on feelings. It doesn't rest on circumstances. Our faith is founded on an event that happened over 2,000 years ago, a resurrection, a crucifixion, and Jesus's life, and it is truth. And that's the important thing about today. The resurrection is a huge deal. It's the foundation of our faith. It's an event that actually happened. I mean, Paul even says himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if the resurrection is not true, then we are to be pitied. Then basically our faith is meaningless. We should just all go home. But at its core, the resurrection is about three things, power, belief, and life. Say those with me, power. Belief and life. When we think about the resurrection, these are the words that should come to, my mind, come to our minds. The resurrection is a display of God's power over sin and death. And so when we think about Jesus being raised from the dead, that's God displaying his power over sin and death. And guess what the penalty for our sin is? Death, right? And so when we see Christ put to death on our behalf, we're seeing the wages of our sin put on Christ. And he's put to death but God doesn't leave him there. He displays his great power and raises him from the dead. Not only that, because of the resurrection, we can believe, and not only believe, but believe with great confidence that Jesus is who he says he is. This is truth for the skeptic. If you have a mind that's really skeptical of things, then you can actually trace back to the resurrection and the crucifixion historically and see that Jesus was literally crucified in history and also raised from the dead in history. This is the event. This is what differentiates Christianity from any other religion, that we build our faith on an event, on the crucifixion and the resurrection. It's very important, and I've seen this over and over. Skeptics will uh, try to dig into this. I mean, even one guy named Lee Strobel, who was an atheist, uh, has now written a book called The Case for Christ, where he basically investigated uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus and did it as a skeptic would, uh, as a non-believer would, and just did it basically using his lawyer abilities. He's a lawyer professionally, 
and he traced it all the way back. And guess what? At the end, he became a Christian because the proof is in, uh, in the truth of the situation that can be proven historically. But not only that, because of the resurrection, we, we can have new life. And not just new life, but eternal life. The same way God rose Jesus from the dead, he's going to raise us up. The resurrection uh, historically is uh, what Paul would call a first fruits resurrection. That means Jesus was the first to be resurrected, but also you and I will be resurrected if we are Christians. And I love celebrating baptisms on Easter because there really is no better way to celebrate Easter than, than baptisms. Because baptisms literally is showing us when a person's put under the water that they have been, they have died with Christ. That when Christ was on the cross being crucified and being killed, it was our sin. It was as if he exchanged places with us and we were put to death. And then when we raise up out of the water in baptism, what we're uh, saying is symbolizing that we've been raised up with Christ. The same way God rose him from the dead, now we've been raised from death to life in Christ. And this is why we celebrate. The resurrection really does change everything. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is, has it changed everything in your life? When you think about the resurrection, is there power in that in your life? Have you put yourself on the cross with Christ and realized it was your sin and my sin that he was paying for? Has it become personal in your life? And when he raised from the dead, have you identified with that and said, no, Christ, just like he rose, uh, God rose Christ, he's raising me from the dead in new life. This is why celebrating baptisms on Easter is so, so practical in our lives when we're thinking about why Easter changes everything. The second scene we get is the road to Emmaus. And I love this scene as well. Read it with me, starting in verse 13. Now that same day, two of them... We're going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, and as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more... It is the third day since all of this took place, and in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find Jesus' body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are. Listen to how Jesus responds. They're, they're, they're just walking along a path. They're just talking about what had happened. And then Jesus shows up. He kind of asks questions, and then he gets to the end, and then this is how he addresses This is one of them verses where you wish you knew the tone of something. Like you wish you knew, was Jesus like sharply rebuking them here? Was he kind of empathizing with them? We don't really know, but we can read it for what it is. Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. 
Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The best Bible study ever. Verse 28. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So Jesus went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he began to give it to them. And listen, and then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So again, such an incredible scene, right? You can, uh, the way Luke writes, again, the spirit inspiring him to write, really makes it as if you can put yourself into the shoes of these people and really be on the road to Emmaus with them. And I want you to imagine that and I want you to put yourself in their shoes. You're just walking down this road. You're just talking about all the things that have been going on. Obviously, a lot has been going on in Jerusalem. And then Jesus shows up. But you don't know it's Jesus because he didn't allow you to recognize him. Uh, And Jesus begins to ask questions. Hey, what are y'all talking about? Hey, why are you guys uh, so sad and downcast? And they're like, have you been in a hole or like behind a rock or something? And, of course, Jesus is like, actually, I have been behind a rock. Uh, No, he doesn't say that. But he just kind of plays stupid and continues to ask them. And then they go on to tell him, yeah, hey, this is what has happened to Jesus. He was crucified and he's been resurrected. And, uh, and, and then uh, some women went to the tomb and he wasn't there. And then we sent Peter and Peter says he wasn't there. And we're just trying to figure out what all's going on. And then Jesus suddenly changes his tone. And he begins to rebuke them. He begins to correct them. And he goes, not only rebukes them, but goes to their house and eats with them and reveals himself and opens their eyes to believe. And then in an instant, he disappears, just pew, and he's gone. And then they make this amazing statement that I think we all need to write down. We're not our hearts burning when he, when he would talk to us and when we opened the scriptures with us. You see, just like the resurrection and the empty tomb changes everything for us, this experience with Christ on the road to Emmaus changed everything in the life of these two people. And I love this encounter because it really does teach us so much about Christ. And I want to give you a couple things that we learn about Christ on the road to Emmaus. The first is this. Jesus meets people exactly where they are. Uh, You see this throughout. If you've been here over the past few weeks, we've been studying through the book of John. Anytime we see Jesus in an encounter with individuals like you and I, one of the things that he does is he meets us exactly where we are. If we're at a place, we see this really uh, throughout the, the Bible. We see it in the life of Nicodemus as he meets a religious man where he's at. We see it in the life of the woman at the well who was kind of a, an adulterer and really had had a lot of relationship problems. And he steps into her life, Zacchaeus, when in his greed as he's craving more money and stealing money from people. Jesus goes right to him and steps into that. And what he does is Jesus begins to ask questions. Even though he already knew the answer, uh, he wanted to ask questions and begin to conversate with these people. He wanted to hear about what they were thinking and what they were feeling. And you'd ask, well, why why does he do this? Well, I think Jesus wants us to be honest. 
And he wants us to admit and be honest with him before he does a work in our life. And I think that's very, very important for us to understand and to understand that Jesus is not afraid of our honesty. He's not afraid of our sin. Uh, He's not afraid of our unbelief, even in this situation. You know, Jesus, I think, knows uh, that, that people like to put up a front in front of pastors. You know, we like to put up this veil as if we're okay and everything's going great and the pastor's here, so let me just tell him what uh, he wants to hear. And I know this because I'm a pastor, right? That's one thing I hate about being a pastor is people feel like they have to speak a certain language as if I'm not a normal person. Well, note to self, I'm a normal person. I'm just like you. God's called me to preach, yes, but at the end of the day, I'm just like you. And Jesus knew this, and so I think one of the reasons he didn't reveal himself is he wanted them uh, to, to be honest with him. And so he keeps them from recognizing him. Not only this, uh, but Jesus, uh, one of the things I love about this is what was Jesus doing before the resurrection? He was seeking and saving lost people, right? What did Jesus do after the resurrection? He was seeking and saving lost people. It's so clear that Jesus' plan is to meet people exactly where they are and to step into a lost world and engage lost people because his greatest desire is to see lost people saved and to glorify God in that way. And he's the same with us today. That's the same way he does with us. The second thing we see in this story and learn about Jesus is that Jesus reveals their sin. He convicts their sin, uh, convicts them of their sin. He rebukes their unbelief, and then he points them to the Scriptures. I mean, as you notice in 25 through 27, he says, How foolish you are, how slow you are to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and then all the prophets? Jesus explained to them what was said in the Scriptures concerning himself. Don't you wish you could have been a fly on the wall for this mini sermon? Uh, I wish I had a recording of this sermon. And you just ask, well, man, like what did Jesus do? I wonder where he went to. Well, let me give you uh, my uh, explanation of where I think he would go. He started with Moses. So that would have been all the way back in the book of Genesis. And then he went through the prophets. And so he probably went uh, to Genesis and talked about creation, probably stopped at Genesis chapter 3. Uh, where basically uh, the, the woman, uh, God gives this, this initial prophecy about a seed that would come from Eve or the woman uh, and that would crush the head of a serpent. And he probably talked about how I'm the seed that's going to crush the head of Satan, in which I just did on the cross. He probably stopped in Genesis 22, where we see Abraham uh, go up on Mount Moriah and offer his only son as a sacrifice, and, jo- and God stopped him. But he probably went on to say, hey, but let me tell you what God would not stop. And I'm the son, God's only son, that had to come and be sacrificed for the sin of the world. He probably went to Exodus and talked to them about uh, being enslaved to sin, the same way the, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and the Red Sea and parting the way for them. And he probably talked to them about the law that was given uh, to them. And he probably talked to them about the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that had to be sacrificed and the blood of the lamb would keep the angel of death from destroying uh, the people of of Israel. And he probably told them that, hey, I was that Passover lamb and I'm the Passover lamb. All of this has pointed to me. He probably went to Leviticus and talked to them about the necessity of sacrifice, that forgiveness can't happen without bloodshed uh, being made and telling them that he was the great ultimate sacrifice that would come uh, to make right uh, people with God. 
He probably went to Numbers 21 where Moses lifted a serpent up in the wilderness on, on, a, on, a, on a branch or on, on wood. And then he probably said, hey, guess what God has just done with me? He's lifted me up on a piece of wood on a cross. And the same way that the Israelites looked to this serpent lifted up for life, you're going to look to me for life. And so he probably continued on through Psalms and told him about Psalm 22, about the suffering servant that was prophesied many years before. He probably bounced to the prophet Isaiah and talked to them about Isaiah, talking about he would be born of a virgin, that a son would be given, uh, that would be the Messiah. He probably talked about Isaiah 53, where God says the Messiah will be a suffering servant that would be wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. I would have loved to hear the sermon, but I can only imagine it would have been something similar to that. And he just takes them through verse by verse, book by book in the Old Testament. I mean, they had a seven-mile walk. Can you imagine a seven-mile sermon? Some of y'all get mad if I go over 30 minutes. I mean, here we see a seven-mile sermon that was absolutely incredible. And then listen to what Jesus does next. He explains all of that to them, but then he waits to reveal himself and he breaks bread with them. And I love this because it reminds me of what we call at our church connect groups. Jesus engages in a relationship with them. Things began to get personal. He went into their home. He sat at their table. He ate with them. And then it says he opened their eyes to recognize him. And this is my story because it wasn't a church service like this that God chose to open my eyes to become a Christian. It was actually sitting in a circle of guys, about five of them in Statesboro, Georgia, and I began to see God at work in their life, and God began to reveal to me and open my eyes to the fact that I was not a Christian and I did not have a relationship with God. I was going to church. I knew a lot about the Bible. I knew how to act at church, but I did not have a relationship with God, and God used that to open my eyes the same way we see in this. It's in the circle of people that God begins to open our eyes. And then I love how they commented and said, hey, were your hearts not burning while he was talking with us and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? So here's my question for you. Have you had an experience like this? Has Jesus become personal to you? Have you invited Christ into your life? Has your heart been strangely warmed? And let me tell you what he means by that. When we begin to see what Christ has done as personal, and the Spirit begins to open our eyes to show us that when Christ was on the cross, it was our sin that put him there. It was as if he was exchanging places with us on the cross, and the death that you and I were due because of our sin was placed on him. He died in our place. And then when he died and was laid in a grave and God raised him from the dead, it was as if we were laying there with him and God said, come to life spiritually. Come to life and know me. Be connected and reconciled back into a relationship with me. And when we begin to see that through the lens of uh, the Holy Spirit working in our lives, then our hearts begin to be strangely, strangely warmed. Has that happened in your life. If it hasn't, I'm praying that God would do that for you this morning. Number three is Jesus in the room. So not only do we see Jesus at the resurrection, not only do we see him on the road, but we see him in the room with his disciples. And it's important to see this because it's another beautiful scene in the life of Christ. Verse 33, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. 
And there they found the 11. That's the 11 disciples. Remember, by this time, Judas had betrayed and and left the, the fold here. And those with him assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. I mean, how cool would it be to be in a connect group? to be in a Bible study, and literally Jesus show up. I mean, this is what's happening right here. Verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking that they had seen a ghost. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is myself. Touch me. See, a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe, it was because of joy and amazement he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? Jesus apparently was hungry after three days in the tomb. And then they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the Scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached, uh, preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. That's the Holy Spirit. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. While he had led them out in the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So again, just this vivid imagery. You can imagine this is a real thing, a real thing that had taken place. And you can almost put yourself in their shoes. You're in this upper room. We're in a small group, in a room. And uh, we're just debriefing all that has happened and trying to figure out what's going on. And then, boom, Jesus uh, knocks on the door. Actually, he walked through the wall, so just forget that. But he comes through the wall, and Jesus just comes through the wall, and he's in there, and he shows up, and you can imagine what they're thinking. Oh, God, it's a ghost. And then Jesus begins to prove, uh, and he begins to show him his scars on his hands. He begins to say, you don't believe me. You still think I'm a ghost. Give me a piece of fish and watch me eat it. And he begins to open the scriptures with them. If you ever wonder what it's like to be in the room with Jesus, that's what we get in this passage. What is it like to be in close proximity with Jesus? Well, let me tell you a couple things. One, there's peace. When you're in the presence of Jesus, there's peace. Notice the first thing Jesus tells them is peace be with you. Because peace is what the presence of God brings into our life. How many of us in this room need peace in our lives? I do. Maybe you're sad, maybe you're fearful, maybe you're confused, maybe uh, your life feels like chaos and Jesus comes in and the first thing he speaks into your life is peace because peace goes beyond our circumstances. It goes, and his name, it's a person actually, and it's Jesus because we can have peace no matter what circumstance we're in as long as Jesus is with us. Secondly, we see that there's proof in the room with Jesus. Do you see that Jesus leaves no room to doubt here? He wants their belief to be confident because he shows them his nail-pierced hands and feet. He eats with them. He shows them the scriptures, and it literally changed everything in their life. 
That was when Jesus began to open their eyes to uh, him and who he was, and they began to recognize him. Because when, when, when we believe Jesus is who he says he is, and he did what he said he was going to do, it literally changes everything in our life. I mean, think about it. It was these very men in this room that would go on to start the movement of Christianity, that would end up giving their lives for Christ. Do you think they were convinced that Jesus was who he said he was? Absolutely. And it was because of this confidence and because of this proof that we have now in the scriptures that they began to believe confidently. My question is, do you believe this way? Do you have confidence in what you believe? Because our belief and our faith is not built on how you feel or what we think happened. It's built on an event that happened over 2,000 years ago that can be proven. And so when we believe in Christ, we're believing in, in truth. But not only is there proof, thirdly, there's participation. I want you to see this in verses 45 through 49. It says he, uh, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and then uh, he told them, this is what is written. This is how Jesus sums up the Bible. If you have never read through the Bible, this is Jesus' summary of what the Bible is about. The Messiah will suffer and he will rise from the dead on the third day and then repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations starting in Jerusalem. And he says, you are gonna be the witnesses of these things. And I'm going to send you the Spirit. So stay in the city and then I'm going to clothe you with power and send you out as witnesses. Jesus unveils the great plan of the whole Bible here that he will die and be resurrected. And then the gospel will be preached to all nations. And then the Spirit of God at Pentecost would come upon believers and raise them up and clothe them in power to go out and be witnesses to testify to the truth of who Christ is. It makes me think of Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Luke would say, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus is calling them to get off the sideline, and he's saying, I'm going back to heaven, and I'm going to leave my plan to preach the gospel, to draw people into repentance into the hands of you but I'm going to need you to participate. And so it's not enough in the kingdom of God to just come and sit. God doesn't save us to sit on the sidelines. He saves us to use us, to go out and make disciples, to go out and preach the gospel, to be his witnesses of who he is and what he's done. So here's my question. Are you a participant in the plan of God? We know what the plan of God is. You don't have to pray, God, reveal your plan for my life. He's already revealed it. Are you participating in his plan? Are you a witness? A witness. Jesus brings incredible purpose into our lives. And then lastly, we see in the room with Jesus, there is praise and worship and joy. And I, and I love this because one thing that I've come to understand about the good news of the gospel is that it demands a response in our life. When we see Christ for who he is, and when we believe that he has done what he's done on the cross for us, it demands a response from us. And here the response is praise and worship. 
And the Bible says when we begin to praise God and when we begin to worship God, worship meaning we surrender our lives to him and we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, as Paul says in Romans 12, that great joy fills our heart. And so if you're in this room this morning and you say, Billy, I believe. I believe that Christ is who he says he is. I believe he died in my place. I believe he rose from the dead to show that I can have new life in him. What, what do I do? The Bible says you turn from your sin and you stop living for yourself and you trust in him and you begin to follow him and turn, turn from your sin and turn to him and believe and follow and surrender your life to him and begin to worship him, praise him for who it is. So I pray that this morning, maybe you're in this room and this is the first time that God's ever opened your eyes to the fact that Christ came and he died for you, not for the person beside you, but for you. And you say, Billy, I've, I've never surrendered my life to Christ, but this morning, I, I, that's where I'm at. I'm ready to surrender. I want to give you that opportunity. So right where you are, I want you to bow your head. Listen, I don't, I don't know where you're at this morning. But if that's you and you say, Billy, that's where I'm at this morning. I, I want to know Christ. I want to surrender my life to him. Well, man, we as a church, wanna, we want to help you. We want to talk to you. We want to pray for you. We want to give you some resources. But you got to be bold. you got to confess him before man. And the way I want you to do that this morning is I want you to just lift your hand and say, Billy, that's me. This morning, I want to surrender my life to Christ. If that's you, I want you to lift your hand right now and say, Billy, that's me. Anybody in this room, you say, Billy, this morning, Easter Sunday, 2023, I want to give my life to Christ. Amen. Anybody else? You say, Billy, that's me. Amen. Anybody else? So, Father, I pray this morning, God, for the two individuals that I saw. God, would you do an incredible work in their heart this morning? God, thank you for opening their eyes. God, I pray that they would see that your plan for their life is absolutely incredible. And Lord, I pray for the rest of us in this room, God, that we've clearly seen who you are and we've seen it through the empty tomb. God, we've seen it on the road to Emmaus and we've seen it in the room with you. And so God, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would draw us to respond to the gospel. And this morning, will we respond by worshiping you and praising you through song. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen, would you stand and sing?